You are listening to History Man 1781, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes. After the fall of Charleston, Camden was the epicenter of the Southern Campaign of the Revolution. Through its history, we hope to catch a glimpse of the national struggle for independence. At Camden, we discover and rediscover heroes and enemies of old in Horatio Gates, Thomas Sumter, Francis Marion, Nathaniel Green, Bannister Tarleton, and Lord Cornwallis. Join us as we rediscover why freedom reigns. Today's podcast features a look at the history of Camden through the voice of Rick Wise, the education and volunteer coordinator of the museum. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate you having me on. So let's fast forward from Buford's uh, Massacre, is what it was called, or, or Tarleton's Quarter. Uh, let's fast forward from there to occupation of, of Camden and then the Battle of Camden. How did that transpire? Well, the British wanted to occupy Camden and use it as a springboard for their North Carolina campaign. The idea was to consolidate here, to be able to uh, bring in your troops, be able to build up supplies, and then move into, uh, then you could move up into North Carolina. Uh, it actually would have worked a little bit better had their plan been executed properly. And the reason I say that is Cornwallis has sent word to the Loyalist commanders in North Carolina to just sit still, gather your supplies, build your troops, and at the appropriate time, we will tell you we are coming and when we come, then you can come out in force and join us, and then we will be able to take North Carolina and continue to go. Well, one of the commanders in North Carolina did not listen uh, adequately, and he decided to have a lot of his loyalists come together at Ramser's Mill. When they came together at Ramser's Mill, they made an inviting target, and even though a, uh, a force of patriots went and attacked them that uh, significantly was inferior to the force of the loyalists there, uh, they were able to win the day. So the, the uh, loyalists got pushed back and did not, after that, come out in force again. And therefore, the British didn't have that uh, ability to use them, particularly when they went up into Charlotte. Uh, right after the Battle of Camden, you didn't have the Loyalist support there that would have helped a lot. So tell us about the Battle of Camden. Battle of Camden. Okay, so uh, the, the, when Charleston was under siege, Baron de Cab starts marching down to the south. Baron de Cab has the, uh, con the uh, Delaware and Maryland Continentals. He is a patriot. He is, he is the, this is the American forces. That, that is correct. Baron de Cab is actually a, a, a protege, actually a guardian and mentor to the Maquis de Lafayette. He has given command of these troops to bring down to help reinforce the Americans in Charleston. He hears that they have surrendered, so he stops it around Hillsboro, North Carolina. The American Congress then appoints General Horatio Gates to be the commander of the Southern Army. Horatio Gates, the hero of Saratoga. Okay, so Horatio Gates comes down, he takes command, he asks the cab, what was your intent? The cab says, my intent was to march through uh, uh, what would be Whig or Patriot country over towards Charlotte, be able to gather supplies, get recruits, establish a base, 
and then be able to move into uh, in North Carolina to challenge the position at Camden. Uh, if things go wrong, we'll have a position to fall back on. Gates nods his head sagely and says, great, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna, that's 50 miles out of the way. So we're going to march directly into South Carolina. There's some uh, rumor that he was also trying to uh, be able to link up with General Caswell, who was the uh, North Carolina militia commander, who was in, uh, in the Sherall area of South Carolina. Uh, maybe to keep him from getting into too much trouble, we don't know. But anyway, long story short, uh, Gates marches into South Carolina through some very poor ground. They have no support because it's mostly Tory territory. Uh, they're living on green corn, green peaches, and the men are in a bad way. They do run up on Lord Rawdon, who has drawn up in a defensive position just to the south of uh, Lynch's Creek. Uh, the cab actually encourages him to attack that position. Uh, it would have made sense. Uh, the veterans that they have, uh, the, the Maryland and, uh, and Delaware Continentals, uh, they were some of the same guys that attacked Stony Point in New York. New York. So they were, uh, it had These experience. were battle-hardened troops. They were battle-hardened. And if you look at it, Rawdon, though he had a pretty good defensive position, was not any stronger than any place they had attacked before, and he did not have all his troops there. If you were going to attack, that was probably the time to do it. Uh, I've also read that another tactic would have been you do a hard march, you get around Rawdon's flank, and you march to Camden. If you do that, you put your army between him and Camden, he is outnumbered, he will be forced to go somewhere else, and you can take Camden without firing a shot. Pretty good plan there too. Instead, Gates goes to Rugeley's Mill, which is about 13 miles north of Camden. When he gets to Rugeley's, he decides he's gonna call in all his general officers. When he calls them in, one of the things that he determines is, hey, we need to reposition. So he tells them how they're going to reposition, okay? He doesn't really ask their opinion on anything. Uh, so technically speaking, what, the, uh, what Gates is trying to do with his army is just move it to a better place. Okay, so he is going to move it to Sanders Creek. Uh, the part of the process and part of the problem also is that Gates thought he had about 7,000 or so men. Uh, he had a very good adjutant, a guy named Colonel Otho Williams, and Otho Williams decides what he is going to do is have all the general officers, there were 13 of them, bring the number of their troops with them to the meeting that they're going to have there at Rugeley's Mill. When they leave, he is able to take to uh, General Gates the fact that they only have somewhere between 34 and 3,700 men, not 7,000. And of course, Gates is like, well, we've got 13 general officers. Yeah, well, not all those officers have men. Okay, so, but they have decided that they're going to move at 10 o'clock that night. So as the Americans are gonna move at 10 o'clock that night, he has them go to sleep, wakes them up to feed them. They still don't have very good supplies. So as they're about to march, they have several things that they have. One thing is, is they have some half-cooked cornmeal that is give, given to the men. The other is some stringy beef. And the last thing is that armies back then marched on rum. That's just what you did. A gill is about four ounces. You get a gill of rum if you were marching. You're getting a gill of rum if you go into battle. If you, you know, if you break a sweat real hard, you get a gill of rum. That's just the way it was. It was a morale builder too. 
Well, Gates had no rum, but the Virginia militia that had joined him the day before had brought several barrels of molasses. Oh my goodness. So, what does he do? He gives them half-cooked cornmeal with stringy beef and wash it down with a treat, about four ounces of molasses. Uh, it was stated on the march that night that more men spent time on the side of the road than on the road. So it was a pretty bad situation from a, a physical and a morale standpoint for the troops that were marching. But we got to remember, Gates was not marching to battle. Gates was marching to reposition. That was the intent. Now, he had a good tactical formation to do that, and he had Armand's cavalry was in the lead, and he had his Continentals behind, and he had a good plan with light infantry on both sides. Uh, what happened with, uh, with Cornwallis, uh, as Rawdon fell back after uh, Gates went to Rugeley's Mill, Rawdon fell back onto Camden. He had sent a messenger telling Cornwallis what was going on. Cornwallis actually rode hard for about uh, a, a little bit over uh, two days to get back to Camden. He comes riding in the night, late on the 13th, early 14th, and decides, okay, let's look at the situation. I've got all these supplies here at Camden. I can't evacuate them. But then again, if there's a siege, I don't have enough supplies to sustain my army for a long time. I've got a guy named Thomas Sumter over here operating on the west side of the Watery River, and he can cut my line of communications over there, so I have to stay on the east side. And I know there's some guerrilla activity going on over there. I've got 800 sick in the hospital. 71st Highlanders particularly have been ravaged by uh, malaria. So what am I going to do? Well, if I fall back to Charleston, the loyalists in the state will think we're not worth anything. So I will attack. If I attack, hey, even if I lose, it's not as bad as just retreating without fighting. So it's sort of like uh, if you look at Robert E. Lee at the Battle of Chancellorsville, he is reported to have said, I was too weak to defend, so I attacked. So that's what Cornwallis does. And he marches. Oh, by the way, said before, Gates is marching at 10 o'clock at night. Cornwallis marches at 10 o'clock at night. And when they march, both of them are going towards destiny at a little place just to the north of Ox Swamp that'll be the battlefield at Camden. Well, Ox Swamp is north of Camden as well. How that many, is correct. How many miles north of Camden is that? It's about, it's about seven miles north. And where the two armies came together uh, about 2.30 in the morning, on early in the morning of the 16th of August, uh, is uh, they, they run together uh, just, to the, uh, just to the north of Ox Swamp. As a matter of fact, if Gates had gotten one mile farther, he would have probably been able to break into. Uh, he would have probably been able to block the British there, and they would not have been able to get past Ox Swamp. But as it was, they were already past it. So the two organizations run together. Uh, they kind of bounce off each other, and it's oh my gosh, what just happened here? Right. Uh, there's one story of uh, Tarleton going forward. His cavalry were the first guys that made contact and actually feeling the uniforms of the, uh, of the soldiers that had been uh, killed or wounded to see that they were wool uniforms, which told him they were regulars. They weren't just uh, partisan groups out there they had run into. The partisans would have worn what? 
uh, probably hunting shirts, just regular uh, 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 cloth fabric type muslin type shirts. I see, I see. So, I mean, well, as they bounce off, they're, well, they're well, skirmishing and then they... They, they, they skirmish and then the British do what professional armies do. They go into a quick, okay, what do we do now? They had Tories who were local. They could tell them about the terrain. One of the things they knew was the terrain on the left and right were swampy and would protect their flanks, okay? They uh, already suspected they were outnumbered about two to one. We think that uh, the British had about 2,200 troops, and again, about 30, uh, 34 to 3,700 troops for the, uh, for the Americans. At that, they should have been able to outflank them if you had had the terrain to do it. But the swamp also kept the, uh, the Americans from being able to extend their flanks beyond those of the British. So as uh, 2.30 in the morning, you make contact, and all of a sudden, the Americans spend from then until about daylight, which is about 5.30 in the morning, they're spending time figuring out what they're going to do. So General Stevens, who was the Virginia militia commander when they had their council of war, when Gates said, gentlemen, what will we do? Apparently he was the only one who said anything. And his only comment was, gentlemen, is it too late to do anything but fight? No one made any other comment. So Gates said, return to your units. Okay, now Gates had set up his army and back in the day, what would happen is European armies fought right-handed. You would have your best troops on the right, your least prepared troops on the left. Well, Gates did the same thing. Oh, by the way, about two-thirds of his army there or so were militia. So my goodness, uh, if you're going to put your weakest troops on the left, yeah, you got a numerical advantage, but militia had not been able to stand on any battlefield so far in the war against veteran British infantry. That was considered the best infantry in the world at the time. So consequently, you have, uh, you have Armand's cavalry and some light infantry over on your left flank, and they're over in some low area to the left. You have the Virginia uh, militia under General Stevens. You have General Caswell's North Carolina militia. Then you have the Delaware Continentals, you have the Maryland Continentals that are up on a, some swampy area to the right, and you have the first Maryland that is to the rear in reserve. You have your cannon up along the road. So not a bad setup, but the problem is you've got these militia guys that can't go up against bayonets. And that is the hallmark of infantry at the time was being able to use uh, the volley fire and then the bayonet. So what did the British do during this time? Because if you think about it, these guys had already had the molasses and they're not doing well. They've never been in combat before. They're nervous in the service. They finally get them into line a couple of hours later, then tell them to go to sleep. I'm not sure who could go to sleep under those circumstances. And oh, by the way, it's the middle of August. I'm sure there was a mosquito or two out there. And as all this is going on, what are the British doing? Cornwallis sends out a few pickets or a few men sort of outposts out front to shoot every now and then. His biggest concern is that the Continentals will retreat. He wants to have them right there. He likes his chances. The other thing is, as he's doing that, he tells his men who are veterans of war, lie on your arms. By lying on your arms, that means just go to sleep where you are in formation. These guys spread out, lay down, go to sleep. 
So they get a couple of hours sleep. So what happens is just as it's coming up and, uh, and it's getting daylight, the British start going from column into line, spreading out to the right and left. You've got the, uh, you've got the light infantry on the right. You've got the 23rd uh, Regimental Line. You've got the 33rd. And then on the left, you've got the Volunteers of Ireland. You've got the uh, British Legion Infantry. You've got North Carolina Royalists. And then uh, behind them, you've got North Carolina Militia. Okay, so you actually have the weaker troops of the British on the left as well. But the big difference will be those regular troops with bayonets against the militia. Uh, there's a cannonade early. The Americans leading the way on that. Inflicted a lot of casualties on the 33rd. But what then happens is General Otho Williams, he sees that that line for the British to the left, he wants to be able to try to attack them before they get fully deployed. He goes and asks Gates, hey, can I move the, uh, can I move the Virginia troops forward and then attack those guys? Gates says, go ahead. Okay, when he tells him to go ahead, Otho Williams goes over, gets about uh, 50 men and goes forward. But before they can get into position, the British are already, already coming through the woods. Now, if you can imagine, you've got militia, they've had a tough night. These folks are coming through the woods. And if you can imagine, the drums start echoing through the woods. I mean, it's early in the morning, uh, probably the mist, the gun smoke from the cannon, all that are really low to the ground and you can hear these guys yelling, huzzah, huzzah, and the echo of the drums is just starting to march forward. And as they do that, as the sun is just coming up, you see the glint of bayonets. And some of the militia from Virginia see that and start moving to the rear. And another guy turns and runs, and another guy drops his loaded weapon and runs. And before you know it, panic onsets. And that's one of those things about soldiers. And if you read of any battle in any generation, where panic is on set, you just cannot stop people in that circumstance. And the militia turns and runs. Okay, so yeah, North Carolina does have the license plate that says first in flight. Well, that day they were second because it was the Virginians that went first, followed by the North Carolina militia. However, Dixon's North Carolina militia, we think, was the only North Carolina militia or any militia that stood and fought that day. How many did he have? Uh, militia, he had somewhere around 300, uh, don't quote me on that one, uh, but uh, those guys supposedly fired three, two or three rounds apiece at the very least, and they were involved in the battle. Everybody else ran. Gates tried to stop uh, while it was happening. Uh, Gates got caught up in the stampede. Uh, all the way he goes back five miles till he gets to Brugley's Mill. Still, he cannot rally the troops. Since he can't rally the troops, what does he do then? He says, I'm going to set up so that we can reform. And where is he going to set up and reform? Charlotte, North Carolina. Wow. He has a thoroughbred horse and he makes it back to Charlotte that day. Well, of the things that took place there, the best I can determine and, uh, is that the only command Gates gave on the battlefield that day was when Williams asked him if he could take the, uh, the Virginia troops forward and he told him to go ahead, that may have been the only command. One of the things that did not happen was that no one went to the Baron de Cab on the right, who was being very successful in attacking and, and receiving counterattacks from the British on the British left, that 
he did not know because of the mist and the low light level and the gun smoke, he did not know that the left flank was gone. And no one went and told him. As the, uh, the British were very well disciplined on the, uh, their right flank, the 23rd and 33rd wheeled onto the flank of the Americans. As they did that, the first Maryland went up and hit them and blunted their attack, but still you had the first Maryland got pushed push back till they were about at a, a 90 degree angle to where uh, the cabs men were. And eventually Cornwallis saw the situation, realized that the American cavalry was no longer there. There was about a 200 yard gap between the cabs left flank and the uh, first Maryland's flank and uh, Cornwallis ordered his cavalry to go through there and around the American right. Uh, the Americans were pushed all the way back about three or 400 yards of what we now call Disassembly Hill. And at that point, they could no longer stand and they disintegrated. Do you know the losses uh, off the top of your head? Uh, it is difficult, Eric. We think that there were about 900 killed and wounded. Uh, you know, I have heard stories that as many as 400 are uh, buried in a mass grave out there. We think a lot of people were buried uh, where they fell. I think there was one account of, uh, of Nathaniel Green, General Green, going out and visiting the battlefield after uh, they occupied Camden, and that when he went out there talking about human remains that were still on the field. And we got to remember that that is uh, from uh, August of 1780, and Green went out there, I believe, somewhere after May in 1781. So a little bit less than a year later, about 10 months later, he went out there. As a matter of fact, President George Washington, when he did his visit to the South, came through Camden in May of 1791. Not only did he speak here at Camden, but he also visited the Hopkirks Hill and the Camden Battlefield. Right. So when Nathaniel Green came back in, that, that battle was actually, that's the second battle at Camden, but it's also called Hopkirk Hill. Or it's the battle, it's called Hopkirk Hill. Uh, and just for our listeners, at the same time the Battle of Camden was going on, uh, Gates had, had let go a couple of his cannon and several of his Continentals to Sumter to raid a fort to the west of the Watery River, correct? Yeah, yep, Fort Carey. To, to kind of cut off the supplies and, and keep those troops occupied while, uh, while he came south to, to take on uh, the troops at Camden. Sumter at that time had successfully launched his uh, attack on the fort and was making his way on the west side of the Watery uh, when Gates was losing the battle uh, at Camden. Is that correct? Right around that same time? That is correct. And, then, they, they, and then later on, Sumter is defeated uh, up at Fishing Creek, just above 97, Highway 97 in South Carolina, uh, right there at the dam. But that's where he, Sumter experienced uh, his first loss. Uh, that, that's correct. As, as a matter of fact, uh, his men were exhausted. Right. Uh, that, as a matter of fact, they didn't think that uh, the troops would be able to move fast enough to catch up to them. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you consider at the tail end of the Battle of Camden, you had Bannister Tarleton, and then his legion again, uh, pursued the uh, militia and all the other folks who were retreating for a total of 22 miles up the Hanging Rock. Uh, said that the reason they quit was that his men's arms were too tired to lift their sabers anymore. Wow. Okay, they came back. 
uh, went to Rusley's Mill, and, uh, and from there, Cornwall said, hey, we heard about uh, Sumter, uh, get after them, and, and I will tell you that uh, uh, Tarleton was uh, nothing if, it, if not energetic, and he chased them down the next day at noon. So between Charleston, Camden, and, and, and all those little battles around Camden that culminated in Sumter getting, losing at uh, Fishing Creek, all of a sudden, the British felt like they had South Carolina. Is that correct? Yes, they did. And they, they felt like, hey, uh, we, we have got everybody where we want them. However, uh, the brutality that they had, uh, they had put on the people, because we got to remember that when they came through, rather than being uh, people who were here to, hey, we're reestablishing command and control, uh, they came in with an iron fist. In many cases, they raided farms that were uh, loyalist farms and took horses and supplies and everything else. And uh, essentially, they managed to be able to ostracize the same people that, uh, that they thought would support them. Well, uh, hopefully at another, another time we can get to uh, the Battle of Hopkirk Hill and uh, several of, the, of the, uh, the battles that are around this area. Tell us a little bit about the Liberty Trail. Liberty Trail is a project that has taken place between the American Battlefield Trust and the South Carolina Battleground Preservation Trust. Uh, Doug Bostic is the, uh, is the guy that runs the South Carolina uh, portion of that. Uh, they're doing an outstanding job, and what we're trying to do uh, with that project is to be able to have uh, four different trails, a total of 69 Revolutionary War sites across South Carolina. Uh, kind of in the center of uh, Trail 1 will be Camden. Uh, th there's a visitor center under construction here in Historic Camden. We'll take advantage of Historic Camden and also the uh, Camden Battlefield and Hobkirk Hill. And some other great things are about to take place as far as the development of the battlefield uh, at Camden to include the longleaf pine uh, preserve that we have out there. Let me ask you this. You said, 60, you said about 69 battles. Is that on the Liberty Trail? That's correct. There'll be four, di four different trails, 69 uh, battles or, or other uh, significant events. So, and, and you have, and we've already talked about the Continentals coming down from Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, North Carolina. We've got North Carolina militia. Uh, we also have loyalists from those same areas uh, that are fighting for the British side. What were the Americans fighting for? Americans were fighting for liberty. Okay, so you look at the back uh, country of South Carolina, the folks that came here and got land grants, many of them were Scots-Irish. They were coming from uh, Western uh, Pennsylvania, from Virginia and other locations. And when they came here into the back country of South Carolina, uh, you know, if you're under the crown, you would expect certain things coming from the royal government. Things like teachers, preachers, law enforcement. Uh, you would expect uh, a judicial system. And they were not exactly uh, coming in such proportion that the people back here were satisfied with what they were getting from the government. Uh, very independent-minded people who were very capable of taking care of themselves. Uh, they were not allowed to have representatives in the, uh, in the government in Charleston. And so as they looked at those sort of things, it was something that they wanted to be able to do their own representation. So uh, as a consequence, uh, those seeds were planted. Uh, 
uh, folks like Gadsden came out of Charleston and was talking liberty, and the people in the back country listened. Uh, you know, there was very much so a, a, a political campaign, if you will, going on in the back country. Loyalists that wanted to talk about staying with the crowd, uh, others that talked about patriotism and liberty. And if you look at liberty at that time, okay, all you have to do is look to our, uh, the documents by our founding fathers. Uh, you know, that, uh, what are we doing? We're um, pursuing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay. All right. So how would you define freedom yourself? How would you personally, Rick Wise, define freedom? Freedom is the ability to take care of your family, to take care of yourself, and to live the personification of what the Founding Fathers wanted to do. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Okay. So what would you want a visitor to take away from their visit here to Historic Camden? From Historic Camden, we want you to come here and take a step back in time to realize that it was a simpler day in time, but that the events that took place here played a significant role in the liberties that we have today. That there were people, people that in their mark on history still have an impact today. And that if you can come here and close your eyes and open them and see that town that has been burned down, to be able to see the people that lived here at the Kershaw House, and to understand some of the thought process and actions that went into having the intestinal fortitude to go up against the greatest empire in the world at the time from a few folks that lived in a shack here in the back country near Camden, South Carolina, that if those people could look at those odds, engage and be successful, that we today can do the same thing. Very good. So tell me about any upcoming events. I know you talked about the Visitor Center uh, being constructed here. Uh, and tell me what other upcoming events you may have for uh, the, the fall to winter time. Okay, uh, the, the key event that we're going to have here, of course, is the uh, Revolutionary War Field Days. We have that the first week in November. Uh, we'll have reenactors here. Uh, it's always a good time. Uh, please bring family and friends out. Uh, we will also have a, uh, a guided tours of the battlefield. You can look at that on our website, historiccamden.org, to be able to come out and actually have somebody take you through the battlefield and give you the uh, whole concept of operation, if you will, on the ground, because I think you'll find that extremely enjoyable. Uh, if you like the uh, artifacts and things from the colonial period, you'll love uh, historic Camden's uh, Kershaw Cornwallis House. Uh, we have guided tours at 10.30 in the morning, uh, Tuesday through Saturday, and 2.30 in the afternoon those same days, and we have guided tours Sunday at 2.30. So if you come here, you can take a step back in time and enjoy historic Camden. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. Hey, you're very welcome, Eric. Thank you. Right.